Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's July 2023 and the good news is that there's a new social media app to try if you're sick of what that prick Elon Musk is doing to Twitter. The bad news is the new app is from that even bigger prick, Mark Zuckerberg. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back and let's get into it. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake, Hate Watch. The following week, it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us on letterbox.com slash Double Real, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Real Podcast on the newer social media platforms, Threads and Mastodon. That list gets longer and longer each month. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus Tales from the Campfire, is out now. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we received from listeners. So, CF watched the new film Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and says not very good and quite boring and over two hours long. First one was better, this one is a two-parter and I don't think I'll be watching the second part. Craig, on the other hand, says great fun, dazzling animation and a great script. My favourite film of the year so far. I think more people have been saying the latter than the former. Uh, Travis says the multiverse idea has got lost down a rabbit hole in live-action MCU films, but it works really well in the Spider-Verse films. Maybe it's just better suited to animation. AK has been to see the new Mission Impossible film and says, I enjoyed it, better than I was expecting. It does what it says on the tin. Drexel says, very good, a certain amount of quality expected due to Cruz and he delivers. Fast-paced, twists and turns and that jaw-dropping motorcycle stunt. Also, Vanessa Kirby. On our Cronenberg entry uh, for this month, which is A Dangerous Method, Lee says, not much Cronenberg body horror in this, just Michael Fassbender spanking Kira Knightley. Kathy and Paul also saw the discussion on the socials and said they're intrigued enough to go and watch it now. 
So that's good. Getting the word out about good films is what we're here for. Uh, we also shared the new trailer on our socials for Ridley Scott's new Napoleon film. And Graham said, this looks great. I'm really into the history of Napoleon and the Battle of Waterloo. So I hope they do it justice. Tony, friend of the pod, chipped in. I wish they'd used the actor who played the part in Bill and Ted. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> um so yeah that's uh that's what people have to say about uh double real monthly obviously there are comments about the features in the big conversation which we'll chuck in later in the relevant episode um so that aside the first thing we cover now is uh is the news uh won't be sort of topical up to the minute because we always record this a few days before uh we go out but james uh what news has caught your eye this month um i think the biggest one i saw was obviously kevin spacey he's um yeah, he's facing he's trial, trial now. Yeah, and he's he's taken the stand. He's been cross-examined. I don't know how much more there is of that, of him you know, saying his bit. I assume out of everyone that gets called as a witness or examined in that trial, he will be the one that gets the majority of it because it's obviously about him. Yeah. But from what I saw, he's not coming across great, but it looks like his legal team have done a lot of preparation in trying to... Um, portray a different scenario from what we've been told has went on um but i'm hoping that if the things that he has done uh, turn out to be true which i don't want to comment on that then i hope he gets um the sentence worthy of that um not a very likable man regardless of what he's done since then i think he's come across in a very bizarre and creepy light mm. and yeah i just think regardless of whether he's guilty or not he's a horrible horrible bastard yeah, I think the main thing is that it's actually uh, the people who've made his accuser, who made the accusations against him, and and Kevin Spacey are having their day in court. And I, I don't see any other. It, it, even those things are not ideal because there's all the challenges of who's got the best lawyers and you know a, a reasonable doubt and all that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's better than it dragging out forever in sort of social media allegations. So people are getting their day in court. See what happens. I've got one. Um, Alan Arkin died uh, recently, aged eighty-nine. Um, that, I don't know how much of a, a, a bell that name rings for you, mate, but you, you'll have seen him in some stuff. Uh, he was in Argo, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, he's basically been in, 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 in hundreds of films. Um, he was Oscar nominated for his first ever film performance back in the sixties. He achieved a level of stardom in the seventies when he didn't have to be a conventional leading man. It was the era of people like Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. Apart from that, he's mostly a durable character actor who would quietly add quality to anything he acted in. He won a supporting actor Oscar for Little Miss Sunshine. If you've watched a decent number of films, it's impossible not to have seen Alan Arkin do something and make the film better than that whatever he was in. So, R.I.P. to him. Uh, anything else you saw? Um, there was the kind of mass walkout, or not mass walkout, but the I think the premiere of Oppenheimer drew a lot drew a lot of attention attention to this. Sorry, but the uh, writers and actors strike. Yeah, the, the actors strike. Ex- yeah, the actors strike extends to not promoting uh, other films that you're working on. It's not just they don't go to you know at, you know to set to work. They you know they don't promote films. They don't attend premieres. They're not even supposed to promote films on social media while the strike is on, so it's going to go dark now. Yeah. Um, obviously, we have had writer strikes and quite significant ones this century, but mm. um, the one in 2008 that springs to mind, that's why Quantum of Solace was such a bad film. Mm-hmm. Um, but this actor strike, it's... It's been it's, a while. It's been a while since the actors were on strike. It's not since like the eighties. Yeah, it's quite a long time, and certainly before pretty much all the technology that we now, you know, we're talking about, and AI is yeah. a big part of this. 
Although to be fair, I listened to an interview with with the, one of the main people from the uh, the Screen Actors Guild. I think it's called something else, SAG, and then some other initials which I forget. But this guy was basically saying it's not I, it's not AI per se, right? It's what the studios are trying to do with it. I mean, just one example is it's it's all the usual stuff. Like if you've been in a film and that film gets shown on TV and continues to make money under the old contract actors would get a little bit of money from that in the same way that musicians get royalties when their songs are played on the radio they're trying to cut that off which is just you know course actors are going to push back on that and on the ai stuff i mean i've seen people say look ai is coming you can't just kind of pretend it's not there and be a luddite but what the actors are saying is for example if your digital image gets reused and they add like get your image to say lines and be in a film you know then you sh- the actor should A, have some control and approval over that and B, make some money from that because it's their image. And the studios are saying, no, you can't have that. And they want starving actors who, who are doing their first ever job to sign this kind of permanent waiver that says they can do whatever they want with their digital image forever without permission or money. And it's like, no way the actors are going to accept that. It's, you know, so I'm, you know, the studios are totally taking the piss, <clears throat> if you ask me. Yeah, not the first time. It's something that I hope there's a resolution, but it's something that they're going to pull in the future. Yeah. Um. And Hollywood is just an evil, evil cesspit, and they always find a way to, um, milk the the workers and everyone yeah, involved yeah. in the industry dry. So I'm not, I'm not surprised they're going on strike, and I imagine there'll be a somewhat flimsy and definitely temporary, um, resolution, and then give it another fifteen years, and there'll be another one. Yeah. They'll. Yeah. I expect this will carry on. Uh, another one, uh, Julian Sands has been uh, found dead. Uh, this made the headlines initially because he he's a British actor. But he lives or lived in in the sort of California area, like near LA, and he used to go on a lot of hikes up in the hills. There was this terrible storm in LA while he was out hiking up a mountain. Uh, he went missing. It took weeks, and and as people sort of ex- expected, he's sadly been found dead. He was uh, probably biggest in the 80s, but he was one of those people who would pop up in things, you know, pretty regularly ever since. I don't know if you'd heard of Julian Sands, mate. I'd heard of him, but I don't think I'd seen anything that he'd yeah. been or ever had. I didn't remember him. Yeah, yeah. Anything else but caught your eye? very sad. Sorry, mate. Um, no, no. Um, anything else caught my eye? It's obviously a big month for films coming out, um, but other than that, I can't think of anything not related to new releases. Yeah, there's one thing I just wanted to mention is that, uh, I mean, The Flash has been officially deemed a flop. It's not made enough money. It's going to lose money. Um, mm. There's been discussion of that. It's it's funny. It's, it's not been so much like the Ezra Miller effect, although I'm sure that didn't help. It's not so much the... Um, the, the, the reviews were, like, fine. But after all that hype, you know, this is the best superhero film ever, the reviews were, look, it's not terrible. It's okay. It's fine. And that just wasn't enough to push it over the top. And I think because DC films have been so crap lately um, and it feels like that James Gunn coming in is like, it's a fresh start now. It's almost like people are saying they're just writing off these films. People are going, well, this is like the old era. We, we know that was crap. We saw Batman versus Superman. And a lot of people just aren't showing up for it. The other film that's been called a flop is uh, the new Indiana Jones. They're saying that's not going to make its money back either. That's only been out a couple of weeks, but people have already said not happening, failure imagine my shock yeah i mean oddly enough mission impossible dead reckoning part one long title has had similar numbers in its first four or five days in the states to indiana jones people are going why why isn't that a flop well the first thing to that is mission impossible's done quite a lot of money worldwide 
uh, and, and tends to do well internationally as well. So overall, it, it tends to make more money. And also, MI7, the Mission Impossible films tend to last longer in the cinema. So, yeah. But it's too early to say whether MI MI seven is going to be a hit as well. But yeah, it's um, it's a tough year for the for the blockbusters so far. A lot of them haven't done all that well. Any other news for you, mate? Um, I think quickly just to end on follow on and end on that Mission Impossible point there is that I did see there was a little bit of kind of tension between obviously Tom Cruise and IMAX. Yeah, I don't oh, know really? across. I, I, I don't know if you saw this, but it was to do with the fact that Oppenheimer and uh, Mission Impossible Seven—is it seven, eight, nine, whatever it is? It's seven. Dead yeah. Reckoning is um, Tom Cruise wanted it released in as many IMAX screens as possible, understandably, because I imagine visually it's going to be the type of film you need mm-hmm. to see on a massive IMAX screen. But obviously, Christopher Nolan has done nothing but film on IMAX for, um, well, for decades now since his um his big films. Um and Tom Cruise is I think kind of kicked off a little bit because they've they're showing I think they're showing Mission Impossible on the IMAX right now but as soon as Oppenheimer Oppenheimer comes out it's taking over yeah he's only and, got a couple of weeks before Oppenheimer comes out yeah. yes let me see if I can find the exact quote but I think the IMAX um CEO or whoever kind of responded to it and said look Christopher Nolan's been filming on IMAX for years we'd love to have Mission Impossible um on and we're going to show it as much as we can kind of thing, but kind of showing a bit of loyalty to Christopher Nolan there. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, when the new film when a new film comes out, like Oppenheimer, it will have negotiated a fairly wide release, you know. Uh, funnily enough, if, if, if Mission Impossible had come out a month earlier, it would have fucking cleaned up because no one was going to see the other blockbusters that were out at that point. Uh, it's just, uh, you know... There's a lot, there's a lot of competition between films. I mean, I think MI7 is still going to do okay, but yeah, I mean, it is worth seeing it on IMAX. So I would say if you want to see Mission Impossible on IMAX, you know, get out there uh, soon because from July the twenty first, it's not going to be on a lot less, isn't it? I don't necessarily know if Tom Cruise has publicly or even privately kicked off about this. Um, I think he's got quite. I think he's got the right to be quite annoyed because IMAX, um, you know, kind of owe Tom Cruise because of the. Uh, Top Gun Maverick success, it, it did, you know, bring IMAX to new heights. It was uh, it was the 12th highest grossing IMAX title of all time. And maybe it's the studio kind of having a bit of a gripe with it. Um, so I don't know where you stand on it, because obviously there's that kind of loyalty to Christopher Nolan, who's, you know, been a IMAX fan. Pioneer. Pioneer, pioneer really. is probably the best word, yeah, for years. Um, but... You know, Tom Cruise also has contributed to the success of IMAX with um, Top Gun Maverick. I think it's a little bit petulant. I think Dead Reckoning getting a week of IMAX release maybe isn't as much. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's whenever you release the film. And I, Oppenheimer was always going to get a massive IMAX release. Yeah. So I think it's kind of got to be on the studio for that one to maybe think, oh, well, maybe we release it a couple of weeks earlier. Like like they've done with Deadpool 3. It's I don't think it's a big deal saying, yeah, oh, let's but- release it. These films are in competition with each other. All sorts of stuff happened. I mean, much worse than this has happened between films competing with with each other. Do you remember we were talking about the Wyatt Earp film, Tombstone, and Kevin Costner tried to get that film completely canned because he was trying to make a Wyatt Earp film of of his own. So this sort of competition is normal. If I mean, funny thing with Oppenheimer is it's it's much cheaper than... um, 
uh, Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One cost two hundred ninety-one million to make. Oppenheimer cost a hundred million, and is R-rated, which is a financial risk these days. Oppenheimer needs to make like two hundred million to make its money back, and will probably make three. Um, it'll be fine, I think, because people are showing an interest in it. If you go on the um, if you go on the the BFI IMAX website for Waterloo, where we went to see D- Dunkirk, Oppenheimer's already sold out for the first kind of two three weeks at the BFI IMAX. Yeah. Apart from the the shitty ones at the front where you get neck ache because you're so close to the screen, right? <laughs> every every other screening is like sold out, like eleven in the morning, sold out. Um, so Oppenheimer's going to be fine. I get the feeling, right, that Mission Impossible is going to hang around because the rest of the... We'll come into the new releases in a minute. There's not a lot else on. And I think Mission Impossible is going to last and might well get back in the in the IMAX screenings. I think Tom Cruise is just trying to keep the pressure up and try and get as many IMAX screenings as he can. We'll see how that shakes out. My prediction is Mission Impossible 7 is going to hang around this summer and might come back to IMAX. Yeah, I think, I think it will. And I... I think the problem definitely lies with um, Paramount, who had a chance to book the slot. Oppenheimer, um, booked by Universal, which is controversial because Chris- Christopher Nolan's been a Warner Brothers director for mm-hmm. years, but that's by the by. Uh, Oppenheimer was booked in a year earlier for mm-hmm. this IMAX slot by um, Universal, so it's Paramount that have kind of... Nolan always sc- Nolan always well. releases his films at like this this weekend of July. Always, always, yeah. always. So I think it's more to do... I think Tom Cruise is just a bit annoyed, but I think he's being a bit annoyed at the wrong person. IMAX have the slots available, and it's down to the studio to kind of sort that, but hope they're, I hope they're both good films, regardless yeah. of this. Yeah. All right, shall we move on to new releases? Because we've kind of like sort of start to segue into that naturally. Um, what basically with new releases in this point is anything that's sort of coming out from like now until the next like episode of Double Room Monthly comes out. So it's now until uh, August the twenty fifth when our next Double Room Monthly will be released. Uh, what what new releases have, uh, have have captured your imagination, mate? I've not been to see many new releases. It's been quite a busy month. I'm obviously keeping an eye on them. There's been the Spider-Man film. Um, but obviously, um, we're filming this a few days before, but the 21st is going to be quite a big day for big releases. Oppenheimer Barbie, and Barbie. Oppenheimer, yeah, um, yeah. Both getting initial... I don't think Oppenheimer's had many reviews yet, but Barbie's had um, mostly positive reviews so far. Um, and yeah, the, other than that, there's not many films that are catching my eye or grabbing my attention there's been mission impossible 2 of course mission impossible and t double o sorry that's everybody confusing yeah 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 um yeah. obviously blockbuster season and i think those three films are going to have a very big positive month yeah i mean i don't think it's a very after those come out after the 21st it's not a very inspiring month after that um there's not a lot out so i think barbie oppenheimer and possibly mission impossible are going to dominate the summer because there's really not much com- coming out between now and the end of August now. The July the 28th, you've got a Haunted Mansion remake. Uh, I mean... Who cares? Exactly. And then there's another Teenage Mutant Ninja fil- uh, New- Turtles film teenage, uh, called Mutant Mayhem. The animation style looks a bit different. Seth Rogen's involved in the writing, but... I mean, whatever. Yeah. Um, there is one interesting... It's not a blockbuster, though, but it's sort of sneaking out on August the 3rd. It's called The Hiding Place, which is looks sounds interesting. It's about the true life story of a woman called Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, a Dutch woman who hid and saved over 800 Jews from the Holocaust, uh, linked up with the Dutch resistance, was smuggling people out. She was eventually caught and sent to a concentration camp, tells her her whole story. Um, just to put that in context, 
Schindler, who is rightly sort of lauded for everything he did to save so many people, he saved about 1,300 Jews, 1,300 Jews in a massive factory. Corrie ten Boom had a house and yeah, she that's... got she got 800 Jews out of, out of the Netherlands. So this, Who's she's an that? extraordinary woman. I think I've woman. seen that. Who's... Um, I think it's a good question. Let me look that up. As soon as you say the names, we'll recognise them. Uh, a lot of names I don't recognise. I don't know if this is even if this is an indie film or a foreign film. Maybe I'm thinking of a different film then. I recognise one of the guys in it because he was in Mash years and years ago. Um, but actually, uh, this is not very well known people. It's I think it's going to be quite an indie film. Um, but keep an eye on it. I think you know if you know when sometimes people are like look. I've had enough of blockbusters. I want to watch something a bit different. I think this is the something a bit different you could pop in and see. Uh, in the summer, especially when the most of the you know once you've seen the genuinely interesting you know big films you know Barbie Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible Seven you may not want to watch any of the other blockbusters uh, so this is this is nestled in the middle there August the third might be worth a watch yeah mate that sounds interesting it sounds very like like it's a much smaller production and if you're fancying something yeah. different to your summer blockbuster and it's, it sounds like a compelling story so it sounds like it's worth a watch. Yeah, a bit of counter-programming there. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i just not seeing that much out there. There's Meg 2. I mean, the only thing that's really noticed about that film at all is that Ben Wheatley's directing it, so it's kind of odd that someone who's kind of normally quite sort of strange, weird, and out there in his indie stuff is doing stuff like this now. Um, there's a film called Gran Turismo, which sounds mildly interesting. It's based on the true story of a kid who was really good at a racing, the, the racing video game Gran Turismo, and it got him a place in a training program to race cars for real. Uh, it's directed by Neil Blomkamp. Saw the trailer. It looks all right. I don't think it's going to transform the summer, though. Uh, and on the 18th of August, there's Blue Beetle, which is a DC blockbuster. I hadn't even heard of the Blue Beetle character. I noticed that Manny from Cobra Kai is in it. I like him, but it looks like it looks like it should be on the fucking Disney Channel or something. Do you know what I mean? And I just don't I don't see it being a big blockbuster for the summer. Um Obviously, it would be on the Disney Channel because it's DC. But do you know what I mean? It looks like it looks like a. It, it, I'll tell you what it looks like. It, it looks like a slightly bigger budget version of like the Arrow or whatever that they do on on, on the telly. Um, and that's it. There's just nothing nothing else. I, mean, I don't see much on. I, th- I think the films that are coming out in the next kind of couple of days have got the next month to themselves at the box office. Yeah, no, you you sound right. It's uh, I've, I saw a trailer for that Blue Beetle and I couldn't be asked with it. It just it looks like another. DC film that is going to flop. I think I, I think the hoping lightning is going to strike tra- twice, like like it did with the first Shazam film. Like, say, look, this is a bit alternative, might skew towards a slightly younger audience, sort of, but you know, slightly funnier. But that Shazam thing's already played out. The Shazam sequel died on its ass as well. I, I, it's like it's, DC just need a complete reboot, man. You know. But then the problem is when you reboot, you think, oh, we're going to get Batman's origin story again. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. Maybe want to catch on the sh- on demand on streaming kind of thing. So now we we move to the um, uh, the most competitive part of Double Room Monthly, which is the penalty shootout film quiz. Um, this is the high standard, high stakes. Uh, rather complicated quiz that we do. I uh, hope you're enjoying it. Uh, what happens is we answer five questions in a penalty shootout format, like from football. I'm sure you understand how that works. 
uh, best of five uh, wins, or if it's equal after five questions, uh, we have a tiebreaker. Uh, quirks to this are that we have a uh, sort of a preliminary phase where we have to rank a blind rank a list of films that we don't know we're going to see. Whoever does best in that gets a lifeline in the quiz. Um, and there is a forfeit. If you lose the quiz, the winner makes you watch a film you know you're not going to like. Um, what are you going to give me for a forfeit uh, this month, mate? Is it still the same forfeit from last month? It's entirely up what to you what it? you want to do. I'm trying to remember. It, it was not, Stephen... not say, Was it A Monkey's Tale? A Monkey's Tale. Yeah, that's Steven right. Seagal. Yeah. So yeah, let, 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 let's go back. Previously, we were nominating a specific one to each. Like, you were going to make me watch any Steven Seagal film after 2010. I was going to make you watch uh, uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, a Wes Anderson film I know you're going to be hate and be irritated by. We did a special one last month where the loser, or either of us, whoever loses, has to watch A Monkey's Tale. If nobody wins, you know, there's no forfeit. So unless we do exceptionally badly, so yeah. unless we get none of them right, and, and it's a disaster, and we should have got them right, kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, do you want to? Roll over? Do you want to roll over Monkey's Tail, or do you want to go back to the old forfeits? I think we have to roll over till someone has to crumble and watch that. I think that's so. Monkey, that's monkey, monkey, the monkey's tail is going to for us this time as well. Okay, yeah, monkey's tail is on. Monkey's tail it is. Okay. Um. So, do you want to do your blind? Do you want to? Do your blind ranking list for me first, or do you want, do you want me to do yours? I think you went first last time, so let's right. flip it. Okay. Uh, so does that mean I, I read out to you? Yeah, and I've got to. Okay. Okay, so this is a list of threes. These are the third films in a series. So such and such three, you know, Lethal Weapon 3, whatever, Alien 3, although those aren't on the list. It's those kinds of sequels, yeah? Okie dokie. I've been quite I've been quite um uh strict on myself. It had to have three in the actual title somewhere. And I just want you to rank these films in order in order of which ones you like best like to least. Okay? Okie doke. Okay, first one. Spider Man three. Four. Mission Impossible three. Ooh. Now could you have a three in the can I think of another film with three that I'm going to put I'm going to put it two Rush Hour three. Oh, five. Oh, I might have overcommitted there Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith I'm fine putting that third yeah and the last last one <laughs> I can hear you whispering and the last one is Toy Story 3 Delta, number one. This is not your first radio. I think you've answered that perfectly. I'm going to have to do really well on my blind Mark. list. You, you've okay. done really well there. I'm, I'm going to have to do really well to match that. I was trying to think, what could he put in that's, you know, three? Because I was thinking you're going to put Lord of the Rings Return of the King in there somewhere, but it's not yeah. Lord of the Rings 3. So. That's right, yeah. my um, I think my tactics were too obvious there. <laughs> okay. So, rank these Tom Cruise films. Okay, just best to worst, yeah. In yeah, my in my so, opinion, yeah. So he's he. It's not a film he's made. It's just the film that he's in, right? Just to yep. clarify. Yep. Tropic Thunder. Two. Okay. Mission Impossible Fallout. One. Edge of Tomorrow. Hmm. Three. Rock of Ages. 
<laughs> okay, so this is going to be four or five, and it depends whether you've got a really, real big clunker remaining. I'm going to say five. The mummy, four. Okay. So I, 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 um. So I think Just one, one was Mission Impossible Fallout. Two was whatever you said first. Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Three was Edge of Tomorrow. Four was the Mummy, and five was Rock of Ages. I'm I'm happy with that, but I've I've got to say I yeah. think you answered yours perfectly. Your 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 blind rankings. I think you, I just committed right away. I went straight into it, and that was risky. I think the gamble might have paid off. Yeah, yeah. I I, so I think I think you've earned the lifeline there, mate. Yeah, and the, at the end of the day, it's just a lifeline. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Does that mean I yeah. go first? I get to choose who goes first. Yeah, you 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 can answer a question first, or you can ask a question first. Your choice. I'll answer the question first. Okay. Making. I want to keep track of the score. Here. Uh, in what US city does most of Richard Linklater's film Boyhood take place? Oh, fuck off. Um, I'll go for a lifeline on that one. Okay, so this is a city in Texas where a lot of his films are based. It's it's basically Richard, Richard Linklater's sort of base. It's one of the cities in uh, in in uh, uh, in Texas. Now I don't remember a single like landmark from this film. I don't think the landmarks going to help you. But it's what you know about Richard Linklater and what Texas City yeah. is his city, and it's not Dallas. Okay, so we've got a choice of Houston, Austin. I don't think it'll be something like San Antonio. So Houston, let's go for. I don't know. Houston, Austin, Houston, Austin. Um, could, could it be both? Did they do a lot of filming in both? It's, it's only only one city. It's not a trick question. Only one city. So they could have filmed a little bit in Houston, but a lot of it was in Austin kind of thing. So, yeah, like that, yeah. It's like most of, yeah. Right, right, right. Go for Houston. It's correct. Oh fucking hell! It's I don't just feel too bad about using the lifeline there. It I know you used it, the lifeline last one on Jaws. Yeah, yeah. The boat. No, no, no. That that was that was a hard one. It, ju it just goes to show how, how how much neither of us want to watch Monkey's Tale. That I'm asking questions this hard and you're taking so long to answer. Yeah, lifeline <laughs> on the first one. <laughs> right, okay, so okay, that that's the first one to you. My, now my question. What is the highest grossing foreign language film at the US box office? Okay, so I'm thinking it's going to be I mean maybe the artist doesn't count because that was in, that was silence, so probably not that. You're looking at maybe something like Crouching Tiger or Antouchable. There was Amelie as well. These are quite big films. Um Let's say Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Correct. Oh. $128 million. Second was Life is Beautiful. Third was Hero. Ah, yeah, I forgot about Life is Beautiful. Which is a... I'm sure that hasn't doesn't stand up very well now. Yeah. Okay, your second question. It's 1-1. One, one. In which of the following TV series featured in Tarantino's Once Upon a Tom... I'll start again. Which of the following TV series featured in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not a real TV show? A. Lancer. 
B, bounty law, or C, the FBI files. Now, to, to be absolutely clear here, most if not all of what Tarantino sticks in his films is like inspired by or or based on real stuff. But two of those shows are real and real shows, and those are the names of them. And one of them might bear a resemblance to a real show, but is not a real show. Lancer, Bounty Law, the FBI Files. Uh, I'm gonna go for Bounty Law. Fucking hell! Right again. I've I've never heard of I've heard of Lancer. I've never heard of the FBI Files, but Bounty Law was very much Leonardo DiCaprio's character's thing. I mean, it's heavily inspired by a couple of couple of shows like Wanted, Dead yeah. or Alive, and Gunsmoke and stuff like that. But there wasn't actually a show called Bounty Law. Okay, so that's two two to you. Now my second question. Okay, what is the lowest rated film on IMDb? Not Metacritic, but the lowest rated film on IMDb. I tell you what, I'll let if you have any one from the top ten because it, it might have changed. Because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it might be like a German film. That's you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you if you pick a film out of the top ten, I'll let you have it. Is disaster movie in that top ten worst films? Okay, it's number one. Smash that. <laughs> we went... got a higher rating than didn't some we... of them there. Didn't we? Got... Didn't we go and see that at the cinema? Yeah. It was <laughs> so. It... So there's films there called Manos, The Hands of Fate, 1.6, but I imagine because disaster movies had more ratings. Yeah, I think it's there's a bit of a uh, a calculation to it, isn't there? There's Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Very good. All right, so that's 2-2. Two, two. High, high quality so far. Okay, question three for James. Name one of the actors mauled to death by panthers in Team America World Police. There are two. You just have to name one of them. Oh, it's not your skills are fading with age, Susan's misunderstanding. Sam Lil Jackson fights the guy, doesn't he? Um, who else is in there? Sean Penn? How does he die? There's Janine Garofalo. Tim Robbins is another one. Sure. I'm trying. I'm just trying to remember that scene. So I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sam Jackson gets his heat kicked in. Susan Sarandon dies a peasant's death. Sean Penn, Stanley Glover, Janine Garofalo, Sean Penn or Danny Glover. I'll go for one of them. Danny Glover. <laughs> you actually named both of them, oh. <laughs> so, so I have to give you the point. That's just, top that, quality. That's just because I've seen that film so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just memory. it's the bit where like two kittens are basically standing <laughs> for panthers in the in the <laughs> film. Okay, my third question. Okay, can you name me four of the superheroes slash characters? that get taken away in the snap in Marvel uh, is it Infinity War? Yeah, Marvel Avengers, sorry, Avengers Infinity War can you name me four that get taken away by the snap? So they have to actually have been kind of uh, removed yeah. So yeah and I will I will let you have anyone that gets snapped or blipped, whatever they call it, but you don't see it mm-hmm. so you've maybe you've watched a TV show and you go, oh yeah they got yeah, uh, yeah, yeah 
Okay. So, Spider-Man. Yep. Uh, Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Is it... Characters are not just superheroes, yeah? Could be anyone, mate, yeah. Uh, Nick Fury. Yep. And... Um, doesn't the Wasp get blipped? You'd be correct, yeah. <laughs> Very good. I don't know if that's on screen. I can't remember or if that happens at the I, end of Batman and the Wasp. I, I was trying to go for the tap-in and, and put the agent that Kobe Smulders plays, but I couldn't remember. Maria Hill. Agent Hill, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, okay, 3-3. Three, three. Uh, now your fourth question. Question four. For which of these films was Viola Davis not nominated for an Oscar? I'm going to read you three titles. She got an Oscar. One of the, two of these she got nominated for. One of them she didn't. I want the one she didn't. Uh, A, Doubt. B, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. C, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Okay. She won for Fences, and she was definitely nominated for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. She was in The Help, and she was nominated for that, but I wasn't asking the question. Doubt or Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Did that get nominated from any Oscars? Um, from... What, I don't remember. Was that nominated for any Oscars? I'm gonna have to go for that one. So you're saying not? So yeah. Which one she nominated for that? Yeah. Which one? Sorry, mate. Um, I'm gonna go for Viola Davis was not nominated for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Correct again. This is like a Germany versus Germany versus Italy kind of uh, penalty shootout. Penalties, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so my fourth question now. This is the fourth question. Right. Okay. You ready? Yep. So Brokeback Mountain won three Academy Awards. Yep. Can you name two of them? And I'll give you five of the categories. Okay. So it was nominated for Best Cinematography. It was nominated for Best Director. It was nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year. It was nominated for Best Score. And it was nominated for Best Screenplay. Was that five? Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty sure it won for Best Screenplay. Yep. So you've got to get one more. Now, I just need to name two, yeah? Yep, so you just got to get another one, and you've got okay. another two to choose from. Okay. Um, now, so I seem to think that Ang Lee, he's won Best Director twice, but I think it was for Crouching Tiger and for Life of Pi. He definitely won for Life of Pi, so maybe it's not that one. Um, I'm going to go for Best Cinematography. No. Oh. Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Score. Ah, Shit. Okay. But he's nominated for all the other ones. Best Supporting Actor, Best Lead Actor, Best Supporting Actress. Damn. Okay, so I've got one wrong. So you can actually you can actually win it here if you get this one right. Yeah, but no, I'm not confident. I'm not confident. Okay. Which of the following sequels has the highest IMDb rating? Oh dear. A, Paddington 2, B, Aliens, or C, Terminator 2? Oh, 
I don't think it'll be Paddington 2. I think Aliens and Terminator 2 will have a roundabout... Is it the IMDb one? Not the yeah, Metacritic. just IMDb. Aliens yeah. will have a minimum of 8.3. And I'm going to say the same for Terminator 2. I don't know if I've overcommitted there. I think Terminator 2 has got a really high... Um, I think that'll have like 8.5 minimum. So you're saying the lowest one out of those three? No, which of those three has got the highest? Oh, the highest, oh dear. So it's not Paddington 2. Aliens or Terminator 3. Do I think Aliens or Terminator 2? They'll both have above 8. 8.4, even. Now, is it Alien? Like I'm, I think I can visualise the numbers. Is it Alien that has 8.6? Or is it Aliens that has 8.6? And again, for Terminator, is Terminator 1 8.4 or 8.5? Or is it Terminator 2? Sorry, there's a lot of equations going on. In no, no, you, you do what you got to do, mate. I think I'll bite the bullet and go for Aliens. And it'll be Terminator 2. The correct that. answer is Terminator 2. Bastard. <laughs> so I take it Terminator 2's like 8.5 or something? Uh, 8.6. Paddington 2 has 7.8, Aliens is 8.4, Terminator 2 is 8.6. You were just no. so near to the right numbers, but you just oh, picked the wrong numbers, one. Man. So does that mean so we I finished? Think... So we finished four each in the normal round, yeah? No, I've got to ask you a fifth question. Oh, you've got to ask me a fifth question. And if I if I get this wrong, you win. And if I draw level, yep. we're at tiebreaker territory. Okay, good. Alien that's got 8.5. Okay. Okie dokie. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay. Which of the Lord of the Rings trilogy films, which of those three films, has the lowest rating on Metacritic? Metacritic. And yep, and it's a score of 87. Okay. So this is an interesting one because there were some criticisms of the sort of the sort of long ending of Return of the King, but also it's a very satisfying end to the series. But sometimes critics can be a bit contrary on stuff like that. What I'll do is right, I'll be nice. So the three ratings are eighty seven, ninety two, and ninety four for the three mm. films. Yeah. See you see two towers is absolutely belting, but sometimes gets a, you know, because it's the middle, you know, it's the middle child, as it were. Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring is actually just really, really good, and I'm just wondering if people really liked it or got a great Metacritic, because that, that's the one that comes out first, so there's probably an element of, oh, Peter Jackson's really done it. Okay. Um, I'm just going to tell myself the knots if I just don't pick one. I think on the strength of the series going from strength to strength, I said strength too much there. I'm going to say Fellowship of the Ring got the lowest rating. So, the highest was, with 94, The Return of the King. The lowest was The Two Towers. Oh. A monkey's tail it is. Oh, fucking hell. Right, James wins the quiz. I'm watching I, A Monkey's Tail. I will let you watch... 30 minutes be, if you come back next next monthly and you see I could do half an hour that's fine given that I made you see it twice at the cinema when you were a small child I'd probably have to take my lumps on this one and watch the whole thing alright no, I, I will understand if 
if my little brother needs his bath and you think <laughs> weighing up the two evils there. Um. <laughs> well, that was a high-quality quiz. Um, I came up with a really good tiebreaker question, which I'm going to recycle for the next one. Okay, okay, okay. We move now to what films we watched this month, uh, especially new films. James, have you watched any new films this month? I watched... Uh, Brokeback Mountain. That's why I put it in the quiz for the like the whole way through. Yeah, for the first time, um, it was Pride Month. It was one of the suggested films, and my uh, my partner she'd never seen it, so um, put it on. And yeah, it's. I think it's a really good story. It's a really sad story. It's a tragic story, and it's very well done. But the same kind of issues I have with other Ang Lee films, I don't think they end very strongly. I don't think Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon has the best ending. It's a very shocking ending. I won't spoil it for anyone who's not seen it, but I think out with that, I think that's definitely the weakest part of the film. Same yeah. with Life of Pi, I was finding it interesting and then on a whim, got to kind of speculate what happened mm-hmm. and just, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't for me. And then this, I don't, I really don't like the way it ends. I don't know if it's just because they're following the short story, but I'll, I'll spoil this one. So if you want to go watch Brokeback Mountain, it's only been out, you know, 18 years. But um, it ends with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character gets killed um, while refitting a tyre that something bursts and mm-hmm. a metal pipe or metal bolt hits him in the head and it kills him. And Heath Ledger's character, um, Ennis, has to basically kind of spend the last half an hour just sort of like reminiscing and he goes and sees Jack uh, Jack twists the characters is Jake Gyllenhaal's character's name and I just felt like it ends with Jake Gyllenhaal no sorry Heath Ledger looking at the two shirts that they wore and they had like a fight and it had each other's blood on them and attached though above it is a postcard of Brokeback Mountain where they met and you know fell in love but it was I don't know I just felt like there could have been a bit more poignant ending I think it needed to end um, Ennis on the Mountain as opposed to a postcard. That was just my only gripe with the film, but it is a very important film. It's a very um, well done piece of cinema. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, re- realistically, when you've got that kind of thing where there's a lot of reminiscence, that that's normally asking to be used in a flashback structure in a film when you adapt it, right? Yeah, and that would that gives you the ability to end the film wherever you like wherever you think is going to be the most effective. And maybe Ang Lee just didn't have enough imagination for that. Because with Life of Pi, he finishes the film the same way the, the book ends. Yeah. But the, thing, but the thing about the book and the film is that the book is kind of weaving an image in your head. So when that, that ending comes, it's quite it works better on the page than it ends up working on the screen. And like the, the person adapting the film has got to solve that problem, you know? Yeah. Um... Other than that, obviously a very important film. I watched, um, I've had a bit of a Pixar month. Um, don't know why, just felt like putting them on. They're quite we were talking about animated films, films a lot last them. month, yeah. Yeah, so I put on Cars, really enjoyed the first Cars. Mm-hmm. Second one's not good. It's it, it's weak. I think one of the best things about the first one was Mater, and they really overused them for the second one, but they mm-hmm. used them the wrong way. They basically kind of make him sort of like a a protagonist, but a protagonist that just kind of ruins Lightning McQueen's life, and it's yeah, yeah. 
I, I just thought it was weak. And then I tried to watch Cars 3. And basically the plot of Cars 3 is that there's all these new race cars coming in with all the modern technology and Lightning McQueen's kind of old-fashioned in the sense that he's got the kind of old ways yeah. of training and um, doesn't have the facilities that these new cars do and he's really desperate to try and keep up. He has a really bad crash mm-hmm. and he sort of has to rehabilitate and he gets um, taken to this new modern facility from his bias sponsors and his, ends up with his trainer actually wanting to race. She said she never had the confidence to and it, I just... I didn't have any, not in a bad way. I just didn't have any interest in that character's like storyline. Like if this character had been introduced early on, then maybe. But it felt like they had sort of like three of like they had three distinctly different films, and they tried. They, they just, if I really wanted that character, I, th- I can't remember her name, but his trainer. What's her name? I'll do, I'll do it justice, even though it doesn't really deserve it. Cause it's yeah, what, yeah. While you look it up, I think it a character like that feels a bit tacked on if they only show up in the third film, right? Yeah. So her name is Cruz Ramirez. Yeah. Now, I had no interest in Cruz's character. She's introduced like 35, 40 minutes into the last film. Mm-hmm. So you know, we're meant to be like, yeah, let's let's want her to win. If and it's, it's a, nice. If it's about her, make it about her, right? Yeah, if they totally changed it and um, Lightning McQueen had, um, you know, maybe in the second... I think they should have made the second one nothing to do with, like, a spy. Oh, yeah, um, that was... If they'd made Lightning McQueen... If we got to see him win the Piston Cups and win those things, then he's, like, going to get in training and we meet the character then and then the third Mm -hmm. one's more about that and then Mm -hmm. maybe that way then totally because it's trying to comment on, like, the... The, f- the female car not you know having like the confidence to kind of break into what is a, a man's world and I, I like the idea of that I think it's important for kids to kind of understand and be introduced to that f- stuff early on but it was it's just there's not enough engagement you need to develop these things I know it's harder to flesh out characters in um what is an hour and a half film but like with Toy Story 1, 2, 3 and 4 you even though I didn't like for you cared about these characters, you cared about what happens to Buzz, Woody, and Jesse, and even Bonnie, you know, mm-hmm. her getting her toys back, even though we we were used to Andy for yeah. fifteen years. It's it's just I just think it was it wasn't the right call. No. And before you even start even before you even start getting into the um the film itself, is it an actually good quality film. You just have to, you can't get over those hurdles. You're setting yourself up to fail before you've even started, which is the same because the picture yeah. animation has only got better since, yeah. you know, Toy Story. And the, it does look nice, but... It, yeah, it's, it, all, it's all very meh, isn't it? Yeah. But I watched that. I watched um, Titanic again. Not a new film, but I watched it again. Um, that's a great film. Uh I know you're not a big fan of it, but it is, it's a great film. Uh, I think it's just so well done. The impact it had on the actual knowledge of the Titanic itself. Um, I don't know if you know this, but for years they don't know where the Grand Staircase went when the Titanic sank. Yeah. And when they made this film, they went, they actually, for, for real, um, flooded that part of the set and realised that it probably floated away. So that's why they've never been able to find it. And I think that kind of thing is just it, the the detail to it. I, you do notice the really bad CGI in it, though. I don't know if you've watched it recently, but there's no, I haven't the, actually. 
watch a lot of, oh mate, it's really bad. You watch the wide shots and the captain and I think is his first officer. They walk out of the, um, I don't even know what you'd call that, the bridge. They'd call, you'd probably call that the bridge. He walks out and yeah. uh, blatant, it's like Grand Theft Auto, like character movement. Yeah. And that stuff looks really bad, but the actual sets, not the CGI, second to none. I think James Cameron is a tremendous director. I think he's just, I think he's world class. And I know that sounds pure, like I'm just, you know, adorning him with praise. And he doesn't even make that many films, but I think his films have such detail to them. I mean, it made me appreciate the, the work that went into Avatar and Avatar 2 to an extent because it's just... It's just tremendous. It's so good. No, no, I mean, the thing is, right, while the last three James Cameron films, which is uh, spans a 26-year period because he takes so long over, over his films, right, while his last three films have have featured stories I find less interesting than his other films, I can't deny how good he is. He is you, 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 mate, you're absolutely right. He is one of the absolute best there is. I mean, Aliens and Terminator 2 are fucking tremendous films. I mean, who who who's got the confidence to do a sequel to the Terminator and Alien and make both of them as good as that? He's I I I agree with you. I think he's tremendous. My my only gripe is that I've I've found the last three films he's done like a little bit like simplistic story wise. Um, yeah. But you can't deny the quality of it. It's funny what you say about the CGI not aging well. I mean, I think that that is they definitely have a because I was looking at I was watching a little bit of King Kong. The other day, it was just happened to be on, you know, the Peter Jackson version, and the CGI looks its absolute worst then when a human is superimposed over it. And and I tell you what, if you go back and watch, do you remember we watched Outland, yeah, for the pod? And if you and if you yes. go back and watch the Fugitive, the big train crash, that's not CGI. That's an old technique that I still think works a lot better because essentially what they're doing is is they're projecting the film image of a crash. And then on the front, then and then they just project the humans onto it, and it's so much easier to touch it up so the lighting and other things match than it is to try and make a human look like a real human when you're just CGIing them up. I and I, I I think maybe the CGI has cracked that now, but I think you know when you're talking about they worry about the cost of CGI, the original effects are probably just as good for that. They probably shouldn't bother trying to do it with CGI. Yeah. But I mean, at the no, time, at the time they were going, look, let's use the state of the art, and and I would imagine that James Cameron has perfected his his CGI now. Um, Any, anything else? Trying to think. Um, I'm not doing my podcast in my usual location, so I'm trying to look at my Netflix history on my phone. Shall I? Shall I have a look at something while you while you dig through? Yeah. Shall I talk I about something I watch while you? Genuinely dig don't. I genuinely don't think I've watched anything else other than obviously the features. Which we're going to do in the next episode, and my uh, Nick Cage. Um, okay. Bit for the month. So. Well, let, let me let me have a, a crack at the the two I watched at the cinema, um, and yeah, that should 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 take me too long. I'll, I'll do the both. So the first one I watched at the cinema was uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. What did you think? I really liked it. Um, I think it's. Uh, I remember we were talking about whether it was going to be the same setup as before, you know, with Lord and Miller, because I sort of had it in my head that they directed the first one. They didn't. They wrote it, and okay. they and they wrote the second one as well. So it's kind of the same setup as before. They're in charge of like getting the script right. Um, Kemp Powers is co-directing it. He was involved in Soul, and do you remember the One Night in Miami is based on his play, and he did the screenplay for it. And he's moved into kind of yeah. co-directing. 
Um, I really liked it. I, I mean, I kind of, I kind of agree with the listener who said it, that it's not as good as the first one. I don't think it is, but I, I still liked it. I still thought it was very good. It, it, it explores the multiverse a bit more, and the relationships formed when, when it collided. It tells you a bit more about Miles and Gwen. Um, what I really like about it is that it, it's got that, it's got the quirkiness and humour. Um, and the the clash of animating styles, which kind of manages to do very well, and, and the different universes, but it, it, you still got like a, a coherent story underlying it. It does it like a hundred times better than Doctor Strange two did the multiverse, which is just a series of silly kind of jump scenes. They managed to make it work. There's a really good supporting part by Daniel Kaluuya as like the punk rock Spider Man. He's like basically his an, the animation style for his universe is basically like. Um, the cover of Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. So he's like coming out, some kind of, uh, like imagine punk never went away and he's like that. There's one bit where there's this huge explosion, something falls apart and there's some some something manifesting itself from the multiverse. And says, what is it? And he goes, it's a metaphor for capitalism. And it's just, it's really like timed and funny, but at the same time, it's exciting. The animation style is really like, you know, when they're chasing through the city, it's really exciting to watch. And you care about the characters. So, you know, I think the reason I didn't like it as much as the first one is obviously the idea is a bit fresher in the first one where you go, oh shit, what's happening here? And you see that it's the multiverse. And now it's kind of like, we know it's the multiverse. So it is slightly less fresh. And also I think some of the other multiverse characters were just a bit more engaging in the first one. You got a bit more of Nick Cage's noir, you know, Spider-Man noir and and, and the, I really liked Spider-Pig, even though you can't form the plot around him. Uh, sort of Spider Ham, sorry, Spider Pigs from The Simpsons, and the little anime uh, Spider Man character. I liked those a bit better, and I think we're going to see a bit more of them in the second film. And maybe the other reason people didn't like it as much as the first one is it does stop quite abruptly, um, uh, and then says, "Oh, and you'll you'll see the rest in the other half." And it doesn't feel like a finished film. It feels like they've just stopped halfway through. Um, but I enjoyed it. I think it's worth watching, um, but not quite as good as the first one. And the other one I went to see, I went to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 at the IMAX. How was it? I really, really liked it. Yeah. Now, uh, Dev and I are obviously fans of Mission Impossible. We always go and see it. Um, you know, we went to the trouble of actually getting a babysitter and going to see this one together. That's how much we wanted to see it. Um, it's uh, probably my favourite action blockbuster franchise. Uh, I'm a big Bond fan, but I think over the over, since 96, I think these films have been by and large, better than Bond, or more consistently, more consistent quality than Bond. Um, I think the last one, Fallout, is still the pinnacle. I think that is, that is still the best Mission Impossible film. Um, but this was really good. Uh, you know, first of all, Tom Cruise is a proper film star. You know, say what you like about him, you know, off, off camera and people, you know, people do. He is a proper movie star. He's always, all he wants is to kind of give his fans the best experience. He reminds me of a quote from... The band ACDC, there's a famous quote from like they're just at one of their gigs and the guitarist Angus Young grabs the microphone and says, listen here, not one of you fuckers is leaving this venue, not one of you, until every last one of you has had the best fucking night of your life. And, <laughs> you, you know, the entertainment on show may not be to your taste, but they are committed to nothing other than you having the best fucking time being entertained by them. And that's what Tom Cruise tries to do with his films. Um, I mean, like like all the, the the villain and the main plot don't really matter. I mean, it's quite timely that it, AI is the um, is the villain in the movie, but actually, it's not AI that's the villain. It's the people 
wanting to misuse it. Do you know what I mean? So it's quite a timely story to come out when it did, when you think they had to come up with that idea probably three or four years ago for the film to come out now. Um, and AI has been done before in film, but I mean, what it's really about, it's about Ethan Hunt and his team and what they'll go through to save the day and each other, like, like every time. And it's always about, can they keep you entertained can they keep it fresh can they make you go oh this is good and not just a retread of the last movie and they succeed on all of that it doesn't quite have the same intensity all the way through um that fallout did um like i said i I still think that's the pinnacle but i think it's got a really good um uh you know the team's really good you get rebecca ferguson back you get sort of great supporting roles from ving range and simon pegg they add two new characters played by Haley atwell and isai morales and they both do a really good job um what it's got that Fallout doesn't, it's just got... I mean, it, I mean, Fallout does have that bit where he's got to save his wife as well as, like, the world. But this is kind of... It gives you a little bit more about... Just enough more about Ethan Hunt's past and the past of all the other characters and how they come to be in IMF, right? And a certain amount of emotional kind of weight to the story because, at the end of the day, otherwise you'll just go, is, is the world going to be destroyed at the end? Well, of course it isn't. It's, it's a, you know... So what are the... It's got to give you some personal stakes to, to match that. And it, it did a really nice job. And, I mean, I suppose you've seen the motorbike stunt. No, I've tried to avoid as much tried as to I avoid can. It. Watching the video of the motorbike stunt won't ruin the film for you because although you see the motorbike stunt in the film, they do some stuff, really unexpected things with it. That kicks off essentially the whole third act of the film. That dive off the, off the, the cliff of the motorbike and parachuting. That stunt, which I'm sure you've heard heard about, even if you haven't seen it, that's the start of the third act of the film. Okay. And it there are so many twists and turns and really cool and exciting and spectacular things after that. And they've actually given it all a story. So it's not just he jumps off something. There's a story behind all of it. And it's the final act of that film is fucking incredible. Absolutely, absolutely edge of the seat stuff. I think if you like Mission Impossible, you you will like this film. And and as always, what you get from Tom Cruise is he's absolutely committed to um, giving you the best possible kind of experience at the cinema. It, it was a little bit frustrating that it, you have to wait till part two to see the film resolve itself. But I, I, I do think they kind of, they closed out this film and set you up for the next film. You know, like I'm talking about Across the Spider-Verse just stops a bit abruptly. This does close out this story and, and, and set you up for the next one a bit better. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, they've still got it. They're definitely not coasting. It's worth a watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm torn because obviously it's quite a busy time at my work at the moment. Um, but there's my partner definitely wants to see Barbie and Oppenheimer and I mm-hmm. might be able to drag her out to see this one, but then she'll go, have not seen the other seven, so you're like, oh for fuck's sake! Mm-hmm. So you got to, you got to try and get her to watch these six films, or just yeah. bite the bullet you and get don't, her to watch it. You don't, don't need. need to, I mean, with the last one, there was sort of an element of the previous film that kind of are like, oh hang on, there is some stuff here that you kind of need to know from Rogue Nation to watch Fallout. But this one, any sort of element of information that you need is given you either in flashback or a little bit of exposition. I don't think you need to have seen the other films for this one. Yeah, I think it's just we need more dog-friendly cinemas is what I'm trying to get at because if I could go see all three of these films in a dog-friendly IMAX, like if the IMAX at Glasgow Science, uh, the Science Museum, hint, hint, or is it Science Centre, if they could just make their IMAX dog-friendly, then I'd do it in a full day. Oppenheimer <laughs> in the morning and then uh, follow if they're on at the same time and then go into town and watch uh, Barbie somewhere. That's uh, um, That's your Dragon's Den idea if you can come up with the answer to that. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, so that covers the, the films and new films that we watched this month. Uh, we close uh, WM Monthly, as always, with our resolutions. Uh, we're both doing sort of year-long projects. Uh, James's uh, one, we finally got a name halfway through the year, Legal Cage of Consent, in which you're looking at uh, Nick Cage films that are picked for you by, at random by some tool you found on the internet. We've had a range of things, some good, some bad. Um, what did the mighty uh, randomizer select for you for this month, mate? It was a good one. It was, drumroll please, Knowing. <laughs> I remember this one. Now, no. as I recall, we rented this, stuck it on, and didn't really know anything about it. So as we're watching it, the, the true uh, cageness of what was going on here sort of unfolded in front of our eyes, right? Yes. It's, um, it's a sort of... I don't know, it was like a mystery action sci-fi thriller type thing. It's starring Nicolas Cage, who's a professor at MIT, who starts to kind of pick up on these numbers that are appearing everywhere, and he thinks they're all linked to catastrophes. So it's an interesting kind of premise. So you'll see certain numbers, and he thinks it aligns to like a date and a time of when disaster happens. He goes... It starts in like 1959 and it's it's basically it trails on from then to Nick Cage in the present day. And we have like he thinks, oh, what's going on with these numbers? It's got kind of spooky bits with his, um, I don't know if it's his daughter, but there's a, a child in it that scratches numbers into into the wall. Yeah. And he's thinking, hmm, there's something weird going on here. And then there's like a massive plane crash that happens on the, the date um specified by these uh, these strings of numbers it's very it's sort of like the number 23 in that sense um where a, yeah. a man yeah. is trying to see if there's any connection between these just these random strings of numbers and the catastrophes that might happen with it now the number 23 was very shit but knowing i think we both agree that it was a very interesting premise for the first 50 minutes or so yeah, I remember you know, watch. I remember watch this because it's like I don't know if this is supernatural. I don't know if this is uh, you know pure sci-fi. Uh, quite what's going on here, but watching it unfold, it was really good. And then you sort of start. To, I start to get this inkling, and I think you did as well. You went, I've got an idea where I think this is going, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. It, so with that, to the listeners who haven't seen this film. You're probably thinking, okay, so what disasters does it link to? Does it link to things like uh, the tsunami in 2004 or the earthquakes that happen all the time? No, it's just aliens. That That's basically what ends up happening. It's just aliens. Yeah. And the, is it, they're, they're here to save the kids. These aliens come and they save these two kids and then the rest of the world gets destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Basically, and basically the then Nick, Nick Cage goes, oh, right then. Uh, well, off you go then. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh yeah, see you later, son. We'll Please. all stay here and get blown up. Yeah, we can't. This this massive advanced alien ship that's just flown across the fucking galaxy can't can't have any space for adults. They've only got child size uh, capsules and uh, sleeping quarters. In I this, think there uh, was something spaceship. in the story about you know the humans, you know the adults have had their chance and they they they're, they're too you know yeah, immoral and stupid flimsy. and the kid the children are our future. It kind of. 
you know, like this kind of joke that, you know, the, you know you've written a story or an, like write a story for homework at school and you don't know how to finish it. And then you just go and then they were all eaten by a spider at the end. It was kind of like that sort of abrupt ending, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very much similar vibes to the day the Earth stood still kind of thing where it's just, oh, oh, aliens, is it? Oh, OK, right. Switch yeah. off. Yeah, that yeah. would be my review of this film. Aliens, yeah, switch off. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not as cagey, not as kind of, there's not enough, not as many opportunities for Cage to kind of go nuts. In fact, I think probably if they'd, if they'd stuck a better ending on the end of this film, you'd be thinking this is one of Nick Cage's better films, but in the end, oh, it's definitely. not, it's not, it's not like one of these ones where Nick Cage has gone, oh, look, this is nonsense. I'm just going to, I'm going to chew the scenery and have some fun. I think he's doing his best with it. And then the ending lets everybody down, which is a shame. I think when you start fucking about with stories that are, mystery related or relating to numbers i think you're going to struggle because it's oh a plane crash happened on the 11th of you know january 2009 and you go okay but realistically plane crashes aren't common in relation to the amount of flights they have but i imagine there's a plane crash today somewhere in the world i'm not saying that to be morbid but do you know what I mean? Oh, there's probably going to be an earthquake in California today. It might not be a big one. It might be a bad one. But there'll probably be some tremors. You know what I mean? It's what it's one of those things where how do you flesh out the plot yeah, yeah. to make it re- realistic in that kind of universe where the numbers are connected? The numbers, you know, how do they... Um, how do you kind of pad that out and make a story from it? And I think that's the problem with it is that the ending was always going to be shit. So they just yeah. went aliens. I think that it's the kind of storyline where any laziness gets ruthlessly exposed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's legal cage of consent for July. Uh, there'll be something else in August. We never know what it is. It's always a surprise, even to me. Um, so thank you very much for that, mate. Um, my resolution, it, it's a similar one where I'm watching a, a given film by a given filmmaker every month, but mine's a bit more curated and I know which is, you know, I've got the whole year mapped out. Uh, my yearly project is known as the Cronenberg Institute, similar to the previous projects I've done, like the Year of the Carpenter and a Kubrick Odyssey and stuff like that, in which I'm watching all the Cronenberg films I've not seen, which is not enough for a full year. So at the end of it, I've put on some classics of his, the most Cronenberg-y Cronenberg films to kind of top it off. So it's kind of a project to explore Cronenberg. And in chronological order, I'm just going through the films of his I haven't seen yet, um, which brings us to 2011's A Dangerous Method. Now, this um, this is a historical period drama about real-life characters, and I think treats the subject very kind of soberly and properly. It's quite matter-of-fact, but also quite respectful to the material. I think it stands comparison to a lot of other sort of good historical dramas in that sense. So is it like Cronenberg? You know, Cronenberg's called... If someone says, oh, we're going all full Cronenberg, like whenever they talk about Cronenberg on um, Rick and Morty, it's always about gloopy, twisted body horror transformation. So what's this got to do with with Cronenberg? I mean, where, the reason why I know this is a Cronenberg film and why he was interested in it is because it involves sex, mental illness, um, doctors, you know sort of breaking new ground or you know sort of crossing new boundaries and kind of coming up with something new but then breaching their own ethical boundaries to do it um and it does actually have an institute and there's always one of those in a Cronenberg film so it's kind of if he was going to do a historical drama it was going to be this one let me put it that way um it, it features the uh sort of the eminent kind of pioneering psychiatrist Carl Jung played by Michael Fassbender um and it's partly about his relationship with uh, Sigmund Freud, played by Viggo Mortensen. But the central character is really 
uh, Kira Knightley, who plays someone called Sabina Spielrein. She was also a real-life character. Um, and what it is is she's been committed to an institution for hysteria. She has She's having a massive, massive breakdown. And Carl Jung uses the kind of new psychiatric method pioneered by Freud to get to the bottom of her problem, which stems from the huge sexual repression of the time. I mean, she is going mad because she's got this horror. I'm going to have a bit of a pun here. It's not body horror. It's about horror about your body. She's got sexual urges that for a woman in the early 20th century are just so taboo that she doesn't think she can express them she doesn't think she can talk about them and she's fucking losing her mind but because Carl Jung treats her she actually turns out to be someone who's capable of being a psychiatrist herself and that's a really good character for them to explore and then it's about the kind of the relationship with all three of them and how their um how psychiatry progresses and how um their relationship kind of you know it comes under a lot of tension um made more complicated than the fact by Fassbender's character has an affair with Kira Knightley um and it's You've also got this very interesting cameo from Vincent Cassell, who was in Cronenberg's previous film. He plays like a, a hugely inappropriate maverick psychiatrist, also a real character, who just thought nothing of sleeping with his patients. He would just sleep with his patients. Oh, fuck it, I don't care. And it's this is a real guy. And from what I can see, all of this stuff is is pretty faithful to the original story. The only liberties they've taken with the historical fact is that sometimes they've got a letter between um freud and Jung because they wrote to each other and sometimes they've got like a an event they attended where we've got eyewitnesses saying what they said to each other but sometimes they've got to fill in the blanks like it's very very strongly believed everyone's absolutely certain that Jung and spielrein had an affair but it's not like that was ever in the papers it's not like they sort of admitted it or anything but everyone knows it happened so they had to use their imagination a little bit to kind of expand on their story but essentially i mean how it works is is that it could have seemed a bit silly now that kira knightley's character is on the verge of spending the rest of her life in a mental institution because she likes to be spanked and the thing is if, if in the 21st century now if that's what you're into fucking go for your life i mean we're not talking about kind of serious snm where people end up having like stuff can cut off each other we're talking about something that's really super mild now and i think it's to the film's credit that it does actually make you believe that someone would li be literally losing their mind about it a hundred years ago um it's, it's just really good it's excellent performances really well done it tells the story there's no kind of tricks it's just a really well done historical drama but it explores you know sex and ethical boundaries being crossed and people's um you know people being kind of being transformed but in a different way I thought it was really good. It was just that there's some, because it's all like stiff starch collars in like Vienna in 1910, there's a lot of subtext. No one, a lot of this stuff you can, they're saying to each other without saying it. And it's really, really well done. So in a way it's typical Cronenberg just because he does a fucking great job of the story. Um, I think you could watch this without being into Cronenberg's body horror stuff. I think it's just a really decent historical drama. But if you do like Cronenberg, there's some stuff in there. There's some very sly humour and, you know, Michael Fassbender spanking Kira Knightley is obviously not the sort of thing you get in, I mean, I suppose you get it in Bridgerton and stuff like that. But in a serious drama, it's not something you normally get. So it was really good. And I think he does a really good job of exploring how taboo sex is in society, which is something Cronenberg goes back to over and over again. So this is really worth watching. It's a really good historical drama. And I feel like I know about the characters and real life events a lot better after watching the film. And I was genuinely entertained by it. It's just a straight up good movie. It's a straight up good movie about a historical era that's really, really quite interesting. Um, as always, I tend to do an impromptu top 10 for this uh, for this piece. 
Uh, and because of the subject matter, I've done an impromptu top 10 of psychiatry and psychiatrists in films. Uh, in no particular order, other than A Dangerous Method, um, 10 films in which that features prominently. Uh, Spellbound, High Anxiety, Goodwill Hunting, A Beautiful Mind, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, The Prince of Tides, Dressed to Kill, Clute, and The Sixth Sense. Uh, so it's another one where you get quite a varied list of films uh, hanging around that topic. Um, so that is the Cronenberg entry for this month. Uh, next month for August, we'll be doing Cronenberg's next film, Cosmopolis. Uh, so that that is the end of our resolutions. Uh, you have any anything else to add before we uh, let the audience, uh, the other audience, have a have a rest and and close out Double Real Monthly? I don't think so. Okay, well I think that's us. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature, where we finally get round to watching A Tale of Two Sisters. Then our hidden gem, where we tell you why you should get round to watching Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. In The One That Got Away, we'll tell you about Joe Carnahan's White Jazz, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at the 2005 version of The Fog. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime. See you on the other side.